0: Open your copy of God's Word, please, to the book of 1 John, 1 John, chapter 2. If you're new with us this morning and do not have a Bible of your own, uh, please just slip up your hand, and the guys in the back would love to bring you a gift Bible that you can make your own and um, take it home and use it throughout the week. 1 John, chapter 2. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We've been learning so far in the book of First John that as new creatures in Christ, we are expected to walk in light and to walk in love. But not all loves are created equal. Last week we learned that God calls us to love him and to love others. Jesus says that all of God's commandments are encapsulated or summarized in two commandments, that is to love God first and foremost and to love our neighbor as we already naturally love ourselves. Now that we are born again, John says, love of neighbor becomes even more focused in love for fellow believers. Now this is not exclusive. God, of course, wants us to still love non-Christians, and to care for them, and to minister to them, and to point them to the Savior. But there is something unique about the fellowship and the oneness that believers enjoy in the family of God. There is a new work that God has begun in us, in Christ. And that results in not only a new relationship with God, but in a new relationship with other believers. We are in the light, and so we walk in the light and not in the darkness, and we are called to then love one another. We belong to the family of God, and so we're commanded to love one another, to care for one another, to honor one another, to build one another up and to make sure that the needs in God's family are met. And all of that is a testimony of the power of the gospel to change us from people who naturally love ourselves to people who love others. This is part of our witness, Jesus says. So we are called to walk in love in an ever-growing, ever-moving forward direction. And this is part of the assurance of our faith. As we've been learning that... 1 John was specifically written, John says, so that we may know that we have eternal life. Not that we would guess, but that we would actually know. And he gives these tests throughout the book as to how we may know that we are truly in Christ. And he is talking to us in this section about love. And this is part of the assurance of faith that John wants us to experience. Therefore, as we walk in the light and the love of Christ, we grow in assurance that we belong to him. In light of that, there are two responses that God expects from you this morning. Number one, to walk in the assurance of faith, you must attend to the wisdom of loving God and his word. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Notice in verse 12 that John addresses all believers as little children, uh, literally the born ones. Seven times in this letter, John refers to believers as little children and those who belong to God or those who are born of God. So he's writing to those who belong to Christ. These words are for every believer in the Lord Jesus those who are children of God through faith in Christ. and little children, as we've noted, already is one of John's favorite titles to refer to us as followers of Christ. But notice what he says in verse 12, I'm writing to you, "Little children are all believers, because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven." I mean, perhaps there is no simpler and yet profound description of being a Christian. To know that our sins are forgiven. We are recipients of the amazing grace and the abundant mercy of Of God in Christ we have been washed by the blood of the lamb washed whiter than snow and so what distinguishes a Christian from a non-christian is that believers have the assurance through faith in Christ that our sins are forgiven washed away counted against us no more by God the judge of heaven why because of the sin-atoning work of Christ. That's the only reason. Because Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, paid the price that we should have paid for our sin. He endured the penalty that was ours. He endured the wrath of God against our sin. And now, in Christ, when we repent and believe in Jesus, we are forgiven. Just think about that for a moment. To be forgiven. Blessed is the man who is forgiven, David says, whose sin is not counted against him. John says, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake, he says in verse 12. That is, for the sake of Christ and his glory. Now, that's an interesting statement. That salvation is not fundamentally and first and foremost for our sake. The redemption that God has provided in Christ is first for the sake of his name. For the sake of his glory, it is first and foremost about exalting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We then are beneficiaries when we come to Jesus, we repent and believe in him. We are then placed in union with him, and therefore then we get to share all that belongs to him. Amazing. John then goes on to address three stages of spiritual growth that every believer in Christ is living in. So every believer in this room is in one of these three stages of spiritual growth. He refers to fathers, young men, and children. And he gives God the glory for the progress that any of us make in spiritual growth toward maturity in Christ. First, notice he addresses fathers, verse 12, excuse me, 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then, in verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This refers to spiritual maturity. That is, those who are mature in Christ know Christ, those who are mature in Christ know God not only in relationship through faith in Christ, but in an ever-growing closeness to God. So spiritual maturity is marked by knowing God, not merely knowing about him. Mature Christians never fully know God, this side of heaven, of course. But there is that longing that a person's been walking with the Lord long enough and has has seen the faithfulness of God bring him through enough trials and temptations to come to that place in his life where what he wants most of all, what he wants more than anything, is to know God, to be close to God, to be so in fellowship with him. That is the longing of the mature believer. Paul writes in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, this is his longing, this is the longing of Paul's heart, that I may know him that is Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the longing of Paul's heart as he has been saved by grace and he has been walking with God, and God has proved himself faithful over and over, he wants to know Christ. And he wants to know him not only in the fellowship of his resurrection, not only in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. There's something about suffering, Paul knows, that will draw you closer to God than anything else. provided provided we respond to that suffering properly in a Christ-like way and honoring to the Lord. This longing to know Christ in deeper relationship is what led Paul to hold more tightly to eternal life than anything else that this world could offer. He says earlier in the book of Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So my whole life revolves around Christ, but even after I'm gone, oh, it will be gain. This world doesn't offer what is supremely most valuable. Only Christ does. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if I am to stay alive physically here in this, on this earth, then that means I can be more fruitful in my labor for God and specifically here for the Philippians. Yet, he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I can't decide which I really want. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And yet he goes on to say, I desire to stay too because I want to minister to you. I want to, to help you to grow in the Lord. So Paul has is modeling here a spiritual maturity that knows God and wants to know him even better and more deeply. In other words, there is a holy discontentment in Paul's heart that he has not settled into who he is. In other words, he's not said, well, this is who I am as a Christian and and, uh, there's no more change that's uh, needed in my life or even wanted. He longs to be like Christ. So John says, fathers... Know him who is from the beginning. Now in no way is John saying to spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers, mature men or women in the church, that those who are mature in the Lord can now switch on some kind of spiritual cruise control and now you coast from here to glory. That you just coast the rest of your life. Christian life. Even the Apostle Paul, like John, as a mature man in the faith, fought to the end. In his first letter to Timothy, he writes this exhortation, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul says to his Younger protege, fight the good fight of the faith. Keep fighting for the faith. Keep pressing forward. That's what the Christian life is. It is, it is a fight of faith. It's a daily battle against the world and the flesh and the devil. It's never passive. We cannot afford to be passive in the Christian life. And then in the final letter that Paul wrote on his deathbed, he testified this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In other words, he finished well. Really, that should be our goal as believers. Finishing well should be our goal. And the older I get, the more that that really is what I want. The older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, I just, I want to finish well. I've been a believer for 38 years, and it's a fight, isn't it? It's a fight to stay on track with the Lord. It's a fight to stay close to Him. It's a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all of the temptations that are before us. And I just... I, I want to finish well. I don't want to let up on zeal and, and uh, fervor. I don't want to click on some kind of spiritual cruise control and coast from now until when God takes me home. I don't want to be like the Cleveland Browns and fall apart in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I, I just don't. I don't want to fight, 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 and then collapse at the end. I say, Lord, give me the endurance. Give me the strength. Give me the fervor to fight the good fight until the end. And that's, that's what we all need to be praying for. So if you are in the spiritual father or mother stage, my exhortation to you is don't let up. Don't let up. Employ yourself in serving the Lord by helping those who are younger in Christ than you are. Because really, every Christian should have a Paul and a Timothy in their life. Every believer should have someone who's more mature who they're looking to for input into their life that they might continue to grow. And every Christian ought to have a Timothy, someone who's younger in the faith, who can be mentored, that you can pass on what you have learned and are learning from the Lord. Secondly, John addresses the young men. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And then later on, verse 14 again, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. So the, the young men are those who are no longer infants in the Lord and yet are not yet mature. They're in the fighting stage. They're the conquerors. They, they have overcome the evil one, John says. They're in this fighting stage, fighting hard against sin, conquering sin. You are strong, John says. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. They understand the battle. As Paul describes it to Timothy, where he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This doesn't mean that only those who are young struggle against temptations and have to fight. We, we all will fight until the end of our days. But there's something about this, this young men stage. Of spiritual growth, where the attacks of the enemy are strong because some progress has been made, and he does not want that to continue. He wants to defeat people who are growing in the Lord. Having tasted forgiveness and newfound freedom in Christ, these are believers who are no longer infants who are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're no longer infants who are being spoon-fed the Word of God, but they are learning to feed themselves with Scripture. They're aggressively seeking the Scriptures. Why? The Word of God abides in you, verse 14. They're seeking the scriptures, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on God's word so that their souls and hearts are strong for the battle. You know, there's a really an important principle there in verse 14, and that is this, that your relationship to God's Word, your relationship to Scripture, is the single most important factor in your spiritual growth. I have seen this now in 30-plus years of pastoral ministry. I've seen it in my own life. If you will learn the daily discipline of being in God's Word feeding on God's Word, and then gathering with God's people to hear God's Word and, and get in Bible studies and other places where you can learn God's Word and that, that Word just gets engrafted into your very being, you will grow. You will grow. But if you neglect God's Word, you won't. These young men, John says, are strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in you, he says. The word of God is the key to growth. Now, there are other factors that are involved in our spiritual growth, but this is a fundamental necessity you cannot neglect. Your soul cannot grow. Your soul cannot thrive if you are not feeding it has to be fed God's word and you give me a man or a woman who, lead, who feeds their soul daily on the word of God and I will give you someone who is progressively moving away from immaturity toward maturity in Christ third he addresses children verse 13 I write to you children because you know the Father. These are new Christians. This is a different word, actually, than children in verse 12, which refers to all believers, all those who belong to Christ. But this word has to do with someone who is infantile and immature. So, as believers, we are all little children in the sense that we are all believers and in the family of God, but spiritually speaking, Every one of us, when we first came to Christ, we came as an infant, as a newborn, born of God by the Spirit of God through the gospel. We start out as immature infants, every one of us, but that is not how we should remain. God intends for us to grow up to fight sin and to rest increasingly more in the love of God, in knowing him and growing in grace. This is God's goal for us. God's goal for every believer is that we would grow to maturity in him. Ephesians 4.13, for example, says that we are to build up the body of believers until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Colossians 1.28, which has been for me my life verse as a pastor, verses 28 and 29 Him, Christ, Paul says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the passion of a biblical pastor. The passion of a biblical pastor is not just to fill as many seats as possible and then give a nice self help motivational talk with a little Jesus here and there sprinkled in. The goal of a biblical pastor is to love God's people by feeding them God's Word and shepherding with God's Word, knowing that it's God's Word that is going to help you to grow. Not anything that I can come up with saying on my own, but it's God's Word that's what's going to feed your souls and help you to mature. In Christ. And this was Paul's longing, so much so that the very next verse he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that the energy of Christ, that he powerfully works within me. This was his longing. So no matter what stage of spiritual growth you are currently in, you need to attend to the wisdom of, of growing in the Lord, and that happens in connection with his word in the company of his people. That's how God works. And this is going to keep you moving onward and upward toward the goal. But There's a second response that God expects this morning, and that is, to walk in the assurance of faith, you need to avoid the foolishness of loving the world system and its ways. Now verse 15 begins with the first imperative in the book. This is the first command given by John in his letter, and it is a negative command. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. He's saying because we are no longer in darkness, we are in the light, we are to love God supremely, love his people. And it only makes sense that to be these children who are so loved by God, it only makes sense then that we do not love the world from which we have been rescued spiritually. The, The word world here in, in verse 15 does not mean creation, which silently speaks forth the glory of God. It doesn't refer to the people of the world, for we are called to love others. We're commanded to love fellow believers. We're even commanded to love our enemies. But what world means here in verse 15 is the system of the world cosmos is is the word refers to the system of thought that is ruled by satan that leaves god out jesus referred to satan as the god of this world he's the prince of the power of the air And you don't have to watch the news long to understand that there is an evil power involved in governing this world. There is an anti-God mindset that does not want to submit to the authority of God's word. But God's world only works God's way when it functions in submission to his word. William MacDonald defines John's use of the term world this way. He says, It is the system which man has built up in an effort to make himself happy without Christ. That really hits it on the head. When you look at the chaos in our World, and you see people who are running, 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 chasing after anything that they think will bring them happiness, but apart from Christ. And what they don't know is that they are running headlong to the edge of a cliff. Because there is only safety and security and true happiness in Christ. He is the only source. Of happiness so John is saying do not love the anti-christian world system or the things of this world do not love the world or the things in the world he says in verse 15 if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him the, the world's agenda is opposed to God's agenda Why then would we love the world's agenda, if it's opposed to God's agenda? And and material things should not be your love. Enjoy them, yes. Steward them well, yes. But love them, no. Do not love the things of this world that are temporary. And John says this is another test of genuine faith in Christ. He says in verse 15, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, in other words, if anyone claims to be a Christian and yet follows after the world system, the world's agenda for doing life and finding happiness, then that person probably is not rooted in Christ. Because if they were rooted in Christ, they wouldn't be searching anywhere else for happiness. Because we find our true identity in Christ, we find our true happiness. In Christ, we can only find wholeness, true wholeness, when we are in Christ and then being progressively remade into the only human who has ever walked this earth who is fully whole. And we are being remade into his image. He is the God man, he is divine, 100%. He's also 100% human. As A human being, Jesus Christ, is everything that Adam was intended to be. And yet he failed because of sin. But God has rescued us through the second Adam, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ. So loving the world, John is saying, is inconsistent to who we are in Christ. God's love for us and our love for him are incompatible with loving the world. Why is that, John? Well, it's because the world system is not from God. It's not from the Father, he says in verse 16. Now, this relationship of the believer to the world is something that is another theme in the book of 1 John. For example, let me just read a few verses. to chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The reason why we don't fully connect with the world system anymore is because the world system is anti-Christ, and we are now in union with him. And so we ought to feel strange in this world. We ought to feel like we are the strange ones. We are the oddballs. We are square pegs, sometimes trying to fit ourselves into a round hole, and it will never work, and it should never work, and we shouldn't even be trying to make it work because it's not who we are anymore. So he says in 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Chapter 4, verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Isn't that encouraging? The Spirit of God who indwells us as believers is greater than the Spirit of God that operates this world. Chapter 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Another New Testament writer, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he confronted believers who were loving the world this way. You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, why would James call believers adulteresses? Well, it's because, according to Scripture, when we come to faith in Christ, we not only become children of God, but we become part of the bride of Christ. And so loving the world instead of loving Christ, is committing adultery against Christ. That's what James is confronting. He's confronting spiritual adultery when we love the world. For all that is in the world, verse 16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's not from God. The world system is, that we see, that we live in, is not from God. It's ruled by the God of this world. Under the sovereign rule of God, of course. Notice in verse 16 how John mentions three categories of corruption. And this is when love becomes sinful. The desires of the flesh. This refers to the passions of our sinful hearts. That which we are now fighting against as believers. Those desires which we willingly surrendered ourselves to before we knew Christ, but now we are fighting against them. The desires of the eyes, this refers to covetousness, in other words, wanting everything that you see. And the pride of life, that's arrogance and boasting ungodly boasting, not the godly boasting that we sang of earlier. This is, it refers to a desire to be in a position of authority for the sake of getting attention and, and having power over other people. Now, notice, you could categorize them this way. You've got the desires of the flesh, passions. The desires of the eyes, possessions. And the boastful pride of life, that of power or position. That's what the love of of the world is all about. That's what the world has going for it under the governance of the evil one. So hear what John is saying. He is saying that if you are driven by your sinful passions or the desire to accumulate material possessions... And you long to be in a position of power and authority over other people, then you are functioning according to the world. You are loving the world, the world's system, and the world's ways. You know, when you think about it, Satan is not very original. I mean, he had one tactic in the beginning, and he just continues to use the same tactic over and over again. He deceives us in the same way that he deceived Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve saw the fruit, their eyes. They wanted the fruit. The desires of the flesh, the desires And then they just took it in defiance against God's authority. Why? Because of the boastful pride of life. There's nobody who's going to tell me what to do. I live my own life my way. He's operating the same way in our world today. We have to watch out for these things in our own lives, in our own hearts. Why should we not love the world system? Well, it's not from God. But there's two other reasons that John gives us. And this is how he wraps up his argument for us. He says it's not from God, verse 16. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are not from God but they are from the world system governed by Satan that leaves God out. But also, he gives another reason, verse 17, because it's passing away. The world is passing away. Why would you want to invest your life in something temporary when you could invest your life in something that will last for eternity? That's the contrast here. You see this Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, do we want to invest in eternity? Or are we going to settle for investing in foolish stuff offered by the world that will never satisfy? And if we want to be fully satisfied, then we need to love God instead of loving the world. Love others. Love the word of God. Love believers. So the only sure way to avoid the foolishness of loving the world is to grow in your love for God. You can't just say, well, I'm going to stop loving the world. You have to replace it with something else. You've heard me say this a hundred times, if not more. The human heart was created in such a way by God to always want, to always desire something. I mean, think about it. We wouldn't even get up in the morning. We'd never even get out of bed if there wasn't something inside of us that wanted something Sin has corrupted those desires, but in Christ, God is remaking us. He is purifying us. He is refining those desires, and the ultimate desire is to be Him. So He put that desire in us so that we would want Him more than anything else. And when we want God, when we want the Lord and to know Him, More than anything else in our lives, that is going to squeeze out of our hearts a love for the world. Consistently drink of the living water of life that is found in Christ, and your deepest heart cry will be satisfied. And when your deepest heart cry is satisfied by Christ, you will not be wanting the cheap substitutes that this world has to offer. Father, help us, we pray. So work in our hearts. We are weak. We are so easily tempted, so easily drawn away by the world and all that it holds out to offer to us. Oh, how we need to be more like Moses, who who forsook the passing pleasures of Egypt in order to pursue you. Help us, Lord, to do that in our lives. Father, we repent of any form of worldliness in our lives, for we know that to be a worldly Christian is is inconsistent it's an oxymoron it it doesn't make any sense for you have rescued us out of the world but you have left us in the world to be your witnesses and so help us to be faithful lord and would you please increase our love for christ as we meditate more on who he is and what he has done for us in his name we pray Amen.